I suppose there are lots of ways to describe this story of differences that bind, what happens when roles become reversed. But in the end, it's really rather simple. It's a story about how one family is made and then remade. It begins in 1993. Mike Shikugo is 24 years old and single, making fistfuls of money selling real estate. He was cocky, brash, driven. Mike was working such long hours and thinking only about making money that one day his boss tells him, demands really, that he take a day off each week, that maybe he volunteer somewhere for his own health, for his own good, maybe at that orphanage Mike knew about through his church. I thought he was nuts, and I figured I would just do it one day and not like it at all and be done with it. I did it really to prove him wrong, just to shut him up, say I did it, it was stupid, it was a complete waste of time, I'm done with this now. So every Thursday, Mike would hang out with these kids, and much to his surprise, ended up having a good time. But he also became angry, really enraged by the conditions there. The staff did things like call the kids retards, and they hijacked the TV for their own use. One kid in particular, a nine-year-old boy, Victor, was drawn to Mike, and Mike to him. Victor couldn't have been more different. Where Mike came from a big, boisterous, extended family, Victor had been abandoned when he was five and had run away from numerous foster care homes. But Mike saw something of himself in Victor, hot-tempered and stubborn. He was a a handful, but he was one of the easier kids to get along with because as long as you would talk to him like a human being, he would listen. He just wanted to be treated fair like any kid would, and this the staff just, that wasn't their way. Well, Mike and Victor became extremely close, and then one day the staff tells the kids that they're going to treat them like convicts and make them march around with their hands on each other's shoulders. It was incredibly degrading, and Victor lost it and trashed the lunchroom. So they punished Victor. They took away for three months the most important thing to him, his visits with Mike. But they let Mike see him one last time. And I just remember this... Fun-loving, energetic kid was so cold and distant. And I said, don't worry, I'll be back in three months. And he's like, no, you won't. His response was so cold. He's like, they can do whatever they want to me here. I I had so many people coming in and out of my life that I I didn't think he was going to come back at all. And then on the drive home, I used to smoke then. I think I smoked a pack of cigarettes in 10 minutes. And on the way home, I just decided, yeah, I don't know how good of a parent I can be but I can be better than the environment that he's in right now. And that's when I made the decision to make some phone calls to see what I needed to do. And I must have called like 20 or 30 different agencies, and only one called back, and it was Maryville. And I talked with a guy at the time who became head of the program, but at the time he was a caseworker named Jerry Harris. It was one of the most unusual phone calls that I've received from someone wanting to be a foster parent in my uh, history there. <laughs> you know, he, he introduced himself. He told me that he was interested in getting a boy from a program into his home. He went on to say he's black. And I said, okay. And he said, I'm white. And I said, okay, is that a problem? I said, no, unless you think it's one. He said, will you care for this kid? And I said, absolutely. He's like, color is nothing, don't worry about it. And that was great because everybody else was making a bigger issue out of it than us. They did a background check in the whole shebang Victor was 10 years old when this took place. I was so excited because I got the approval and we were good to go, and I couldn't find him, and he was in a timeout. 
Um, and the way they used to do the timeouts at this organization is they would make the kids stand against, it was a concrete wall, an old school concrete wall, and they had to have their hands behind their back. And literally the staff would come up and just push the kid's head against the wall because they were usually about three or four inches away from the wall, so they'd bump the head against the wall as they would walk by. They were just asses. And I just remember seeing him there, uh, against the wall, just ready to snap. And I just put my arm around him, and I'm like, this is your last 10 minutes here. You're done. And he gives me this look, and I was like, you're moving in. After this, we're going to get your stuff, and you're coming home. And he just, this anger turned into such a great grin. It was ear to ear. It was great. I can picture it now. He came up and touched my shoulder and just smiled. I remember looking, I looked back. From I went from anger to, like, complete happiness within two seconds. I know that because I did the last 10 minutes with ease, I felt like. He didn't want to take anything, none of his toys, none of his clothes, none of his nothing. I just wanted to get out of there. I mean, it, was, it wasn't fair. <laughs> I mean, at all. I just didn't want anything there. And most of the toys and all that, I just figured they can all have it. And my clothes, I mean, I didn't have a lot of clothes in the first place there. I mean, he was so excited. We were both just leaving that place. It, it felt surreal. It just didn't hit us for a long time, but we were building a life together. At the time, I moved to a two-bedroom place, and when he came home, it had his favorite Power Ranger up on the wall as a poster, Michael Jordan stuff. Then he knew it was his. X-Men toys everywhere. Yeah. Everywhere. I love the X-Men toys. I was just happy to have something that was actually mine. So honestly, when I moved in, I didn't want to go nowhere. I wanted to make this last, so I wasn't going anywhere. It was, it was the two of us against the world for a while. One coworker came over to me one time when I was in the computer in the office telling me that uh, puppies belong with puppies and kittens belong with kittens. And it just came out of nowhere. And she was dead serious. I didn't ask her opinion. I didn't know the woman that well at work. We were just casual acquaintances. And Victor used to come over to the office after school all the time to do his homework. And she decided that was appropriate for her to say to me. The response from my family was not good at all. You might, what, you, you're not responsible enough to raise a child. They did not support it in any way, shape, or form in the beginning. When I found out he was going to adopt Victor, I was totally against it. I wasn't worried about Mike at the time. I was worried about Victor. My mom was very concerned because here I am, a 25-year-old, trying to take care of another human life. So she did not think that was good. I was a bit of a screw-up back in my past. So I wasn't the most responsible or level-headed person. You've had no experience, and now you've got to start teaching a child, and now you've got to teach yourself how to cook and how to just do everything else. You know, it, it was scary. It scared the heck out of me. And that's sadly what the family always would focus on, that I was kind of the village idiot, and what am I, who would let me take care of this kid? In, in essence, the majority of my family and I stopped talking. Uh, my one uncle, Mike, who was my favorite uncle growing up, made it really clear, I'm done. I'm not family anymore because Vic was black. When my brother learned about it, he said he better not bring that N, I can't say the word because it upsets me, around here or he'll kill him. Or Mike, he'll kill Mike too. And since then, he never talked to Mike. It was awful, it was just awful. There was phone calls in the beginning and there was 
a conversation I had with a particular family member where they were just, you're always introducing him as your son. Why do you always have to introduce him as your son? Why can't you just make it clear he's your foster son? And that used to drive me nuts. And I'm like, not your vote. And we realized Victor and I were starting a new family, and that was our core family. The rest of them were just on the outskirts. I brought Victor home as a foster parent, but from day one, I was planning on doing a full-blown adoption. I, I don't know how it works, but for us, we were assigned the same judge, and we dealt with the same guy for four years. Originally, the judge wanted Victor to be with a black family versus a single white guy, and I said that would be great, but that's not an option for him. Nobody was there for Vic, not his blood relatives or anything like that. So nobody wants this kid, and I don't know what else to say. I do, so what's the problem here? Well, let's wait. That went four freaking years of let's wait. Having to dress up and go to court as a kid, I hated that. I remember dressing up a lot just to go to court for sometimes in there for like 10, 15 minutes, sometimes for hours, and nothing to be done. I would get into it with a judge in court, which isn't smart to do. I mean, bail money was ready, you know, I had... <laughs> Jerry from Maryville was there, and he would calm me down all the time, because <laughs> it was bad. I would always coach him before we went up, because we would go in together, and we would sit together, and I would tell him, now, Mike, when we go up, let me do the talking. Once, you know, we're done, we're going to turn around, we're going to walk out, <laughs> you know? We're going to go and get some lunch, and everything's going to be fine. And it wasn't until we had a substitute judge. This guy was sick, who we were assigned to, and we had a female judge that sat in on the case, and she told me that you have two minutes to plead your case. And I said, no, that's okay. This is a waste of time. And she looked at her watch, and she goes, you have a minute and a half. And I spilled, spewed my guts out about this is a joke. It's been four years. The kid was on medication when he first moved in. He's off medication. He was flunking all of his classes. He's an A student. I mean, the kid is phenomenal. What else are we supposed to do? He's comfortable. This is his home. He has a dog at this point. What else am I supposed to do? He wanted it. More importantly, it was all about him. It kept getting more and more in ramp, and that's why she smacked <laughs> the gavel just to shut me up. I thought I was going to get locked up. I wasn't looking forward to it. And she goes, that's ridiculous. And I was like, I'm thinking I'm going to get in contempt of court again. And she goes, come back in two weeks. Adoption will be finalized. Then we had to meet with another lawyer the next day to go over the whole legal aspects of everything with Victor and myself. And that's when the lawyer, not knowing Victor, made the mistake of saying that he had the right to change his name. And I told Vic that he could either pick Shakuga or, or keep his other name. I could see the wheels turning in this kid's head, literally. And the caseworker, Jerry, again, at this point, he was family to us, knew Vic. And he was trying to think of this cool name that he could come up with. And at the time, Zorro just came out, and he wanted to be Antonio Banderas. Mike and I looked at each other, and almost at the same time, we said, No. No, <laughs> that's not happening. And the lawyer said, well, whatever name he gives the judge is the name he's going to get. And we had this, the Victor and I had a huge argument over that. It was hilarious. I really, I like, I like the name and plus the movie was, it was, I just, I don't know. I really wanted that name. She told me I can pick any name I want. So I'm like, all right. And we didn't know until the day of court, until the judge asked him, what name do you want to go by? And when the judge asked that, Victor got quiet 
and had a huge grin on his face. He had his chest poked out. He spoke very, very clearly, looked the judge right in the eye. And he said, I want my name to be Victor Lee Shakuga. I always looked at Victor as my son, and I always treated him as my son and would introduce him that way. But now it was 100% he was a Shakuga. Victor is more of a Shikuga than anybody else. I'm sorry. He's got the personality, the attitude, the smart mouth, the stubbornness. He went to a public school. He was straight A's. straight A's at the time. He was told that he would never survive in a public school, which is one reason he got straight A's, because if you tell him he can't do something, he's going to do it to the extreme. It's another family trait. I mean, he's my friends at work the ones that knew us and would associate with us were 100% he was my kid because the attitude, the mouth, the temper, the sarcasm, that's you. And they did tell us that in the beginning, it was like six months or nine months is what they call the honeymoon stage where nobody can do anything wrong. And then after that, you let your hair down. And that was Probably about right. We, yeah, we would get into stupid little arguments, and he kept his room perfectly clean all the time because he was very proud to have his own room. But it was stupid stuff. The TV was too loud, or he didn't put the dishes away, or fingerprints. Re- <laughs> yeah, he touches everything. So there were fingerprints on the windows and the mirrors, and I hate that crap. The walls. But it was stuff like that that wasn't a big deal. My mom was very supportive in junior high, high school, and my mom and I had this conversation. I remember when her opinion switched because somebody at work was volunteering as a big brother, and she was so impressed, and what a great thing. He's investing his time one day a week. And I said, isn't that great? And he goes, Mom, what do you think I'm doing? Your son's doing this 24 hours, seven days a week, and I get nothing from you, but this idiot at work does it for one day, and you're going to build a little statue to him. It hit me like a rock, like... I'm not giving my son credit for what he's done and what he's accomplished. I could hear the switch. It just clicked in her. And then she started getting more involved. And then she would babysit for Vic. And it was, they became extremely close after that. When Mike adopted him and I said, I'm your grandma. And from day one, he called me grandma. She kind of reminds me of me because she's kind of quiet, but she's so blunt with stuff. And it's like, I, I love her so much. That kid would do anything for me. I like being around her. I like talking to her. I mean... Grandma. There was a connection there, and it's like something that interacted between all of us without saying a word. Between my dad and grandma, that's the only thing I really had. Together, we were, it was great. You know, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, he was a typical kid. He would stay out late, he would get grounded, you know, be home at 10. He would show up at 10, 15, he would get grounded. The weeks couldn't go out for 15 minutes late. And I was probably overly strict because I was a single parent and I did not want to make any mistakes. There was that over-the-shoulder doom that I was going to get from my family saying, see, we told you. And I didn't want that crap, so I was overly strict. There was a time I had to come sit next to him in class because he was being the class clown. My dad came in and he sat there the whole day. I mean, I was embarrassed and upset. I mean, I looked at my dad like, wow, why are you being so strict like this? He really wanted me to do well. I ended up buying a house in Schaumburg because of the schools. The school district were ranked very high in the state. And that was really important because I wanted Victor to get a good education. It was a very frustrating time because, you know, he was 
different. I mean, Schomburg was still, it still is a very small percentage of black people unless it's boomed in the last 10 years since we've been out. It was weird. A lot of the kids thought that that he was the guy to go to for drugs or trouble or because he was black. They thought that I can get drugs, anything that they really wanted. And, you know, at the time I kind of fell into it, just started to play into it. And I think that was my downfall. When Victor was between 15 and 16 is when he started pushing the envelope a little bit as far as what he could get away with. The lying started a lot over where he was at, who he was with. Violence started a little bit. He would get involved in some fights. Victor was making a lot of bad choices. He was hanging out with wrong people, a bunch of punks. Uh, the police were coming over to the house a lot. There were some drugs involved. There was some gangs involved, and it was just, it was like a light switch went off in him because he was on this really big self-destructive mode. When Victor fell, he fell fast. It wasn't a slow fall. I really wanted to make friends and, like, have friends. I really wanted to belong, but I chose a bad crowd to belong to. I guess I just didn't care. It was the mix with the drugs and then the friends. I chose them over my dad. He didn't understand why, and honestly, I don't understand why. It was scary because I was afraid he was going to die. Those were rough years. Mike did call for guidance. He would call me and say, you know, what should I do? He would try different things, and, you know, it just seemed like those things wouldn't work. I got the school involved, and we went through different therapists to see if they had any answers get him involved in drug rehab. I had my mom talk to him, Jerry talked to him, other friends, teachers that he respected, but he just kept him getting worse and worse. Once he turned 18, I'm like, Aste Spumante, you're on your own. You want to live this lifestyle. I don't want to deal with you anymore. And he, he took off. There was a lot of praying. There was a lot of counseling. There was a lot of every positive vibe that we could find in our, our bodies. Oh, my God. He, he was a nervous wreck. You couldn't even, uh, you couldn't even talk to him. There was a lot of anger, and, I, and it was coming through at work. It was coming through with family. It was coming through in every aspect of my life. He thought maybe he's dead. He was afraid he was going to get a phone call in the middle of the night saying, identify the body. It was, it was just horrible. I mean, Victor was his whole life. My mom was very sympathetic and very, she was very supportive. For my family, they were in hog heaven, man. They were so happy that he failed and I failed as a father because I was too young and he was a black kid and this is how those people are. And they were just ecstatic. I got a call, a family member said, see, I told you how those people are. Why did you have to adopt them? Why did you have to ruin our family name? And I made it clear, we're not the Rockefellers. For God's sakes, we're Shakugas. For four years, we had no, almost practically nothing to do with each other. I would regret when he would call or leave a message. I did not want to talk to him. There was a lot of different changes going on in my life. I started a new career. I moved to Chicago to completely start my life over. At one, at one instance, when I was starting my new life in the city, a neighbor came up to me and said that the cops were knocking on the door looking for your son, and they were showing his picture all over the place. It was embarrassing. And that just, I was, didn't want to deal with this crap again. 
I met with Vic and I said, here's the deal. Um, I'm going to give you a thousand bucks, which at the time was like a million dollars to him. And I go, I'll give you a thousand dollars and I want you to change your name. I don't want you to be a Shakuga anymore. I don't want to know you. I don't want to see you. I'm done with this. Now, my other friends that were close thought that was really cold hearted, but I was just so betrayed and sick and tired of this. Like, I couldn't believe I was doing exactly what my family wanted me to do. That's how low a, a point in my life it was. For me, it was total rock bottom. When that came, I thought I was going to be living in the streets for good because if I would have went through with that, it would have been pretty much over. I mean, if I lost you, I wouldn't have had no one. He got up and walked away, wouldn't talk to me, wouldn't take the money. And I knew he was dirt broke at the time, living on somebody's couch someplace, and just got up and left. It was kind of like I got kicked out of the family, and it was kind of my fault. So I was like, I was pretty pissed. I was hurt, but... Deep down, I didn't know it was me, so I just had to leave. I just left. It was not an intelligent decision. It was strictly emotional. I couldn't deal with the hurt anymore. Financially, I was going through a very hard time. Personally, I was going through a hard time. There was some drinking that was involved um, heavily. Uh, alcoholism runs rampant on both sides of the family, so I, I was drinking quite a bit and relationships weren't going well for me. It was, um, it was a very confusing time. I was just kind of pulling myself in different directions, what I should be, what I wanted to be, and what I was. I felt really alone. I had no one I could go to. Victor didn't talk to me for six months at all. I didn't know where he was, alive or dead, and then he came over showing me a paycheck. And he said that, I know if I told you, you wouldn't believe me, but here's a paycheck, and I'm, I've got my own bank account, I have my own apartment, I'm not hanging out with these people anymore, and I know you're not going to believe me. At the time, I was lying to my dad about damn near everything, I guess, to prove to him. I just I came to his house and showed him a paycheck. I really wanted my dad back in my life, but I, but I knew it wasn't going to be easy at all. That's how we started talking again but I didn't want to get overly excited because I've been down this road before. So there was a lot of different issues that were going on with me. A lot of things in my life changed, and one of the big things that changed is I just finally realized I can be comfortable with being gay. Um, nobody knew at the time at all. I, I started talking to certain friends about it, but it was something I kept hidden, which could have been why I drank so much. So I needed to tell people, and regardless of how our relationship was, Victor was still the most important person in the, my family to me. So I decided to talk to him about it first. I was tired of being a coward. I was tired of living a lie. And I figured it was my time. And if I can't come out to my son, what's the point? I didn't want him to hear it from anybody else. You know, I, I always told Victor that you have to be responsible for yourself and you have to man up in situations. And I felt like I wasn't manning up in this particular situation. This was something that I was lying to him about. I didn't want him to see me with the guy and that would be the first time he would know or I didn't want somebody that I knew to tell him. He needed to hear it from me and that's why that was really important. 
I assumed he was going to walk away. I totally thought it was going to be the nail in the coffin where he was like, I'm done. You know, this is why I'm screwed up, because you're gay. So I remember uh, getting in touch with him, saying that we needed to get together for coffee. I had something really important to talk to him about. And I'm like, well, tell me what it is right now. He wouldn't tell me anything like that. So I was kind of like, man, he's got cancer. Is he what's, what's going on? Uh, so I'm so I rushed over to Starbucks. I smoked a lot. I quit smoking. But that day, I was smoking up a storm. I was bumming cigarettes off of anybody, and then I bought a pack and went through that. I was a nervous wreck. And I almost chickened out of telling him a couple different times. Like, I was just going to talk about something else and brush over it. Um, so we met for coffee at the Starbucks over on Levitt. And um, we are sitting and talking, and I go, well, here's the thing. I got to tell you... Um, I'm gay. I feel this is the right choice for me. This is the way I, I am. And Victor's like, okay, so what are we here to talk about? What's the problem? He thought I had cancer. I something was completely <laughs> deathly wrong. I was spooked. I, was, I really was scared for a little bit. I did, I, and then he told me that, and I'm like, so there's no problem. I mean, I mean, you had me all scared for no reason. And it felt so good that I was like, he didn't think twice. Didn't care. Didn't bother him at all. It was, and at that moment, I'm like, I raised a good damn kid. I really did. I just really wanted to be there for my dad. I just was happy that he even told me because, honestly, it was a new start in a way. You know, like I felt that he kind of trusted me more to tell me something like this. You know, it felt like everything washed away. All of the crap that he did in the past, all of the stupid things about me saying get your name changed. The minute he said. Um, okay, what's the problem? It was like I had my son back. Ten minutes later, he asked me to buy him a bag of cigarettes because it was such a traumatic thing to find out that his dad was gay. Well, I was surprised. I was surprised at first. I really was surprised, but he's my dad, so I'm going to be behind him 100% no matter what. I'm going to be with him, whoever he is, honestly. Going through my clothes, I found out that most of my stuff is really dark. I need to get brighter colors. I walk around with like blue and black all the time. <laughs> I like your clothes though. I know. And then he started checking in on me, making sure I was okay. It's embarrassing at times because here I am, 43, asking my son relationship advice because I have never had a serious relationship and I'm in a serious relationship now and that's uncomfortable. Do you remember one of the first times I was asking you about that? I was uncomfortable about, as hell. Yeah, about like fighting so much or what are you arguing about? Some we're, arguing, we're arguing over every little small stuff. Yeah. That's a normal relationship. You're going to argue, you're going to love each other, you're going to hate each other. So here I am as an adult, I have to go to my kid to say, is this normal or am I dating an idiot? And he would be like, he's a good guy, dad. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and it was great to hear, you know, it was funny. I feel very protective over my dad, especially now because he's more vulnerable than, a lot more vulnerable than he used to be. I'm always thinking about him, I'm always calling him to make sure he's okay, you know what I mean? Like, I'll get upset if he doesn't call me within a day or two to make sure that he's all right. It was, it was a real big change of roles. As a dad, I can't stop bragging about him. I mean, he's doing phenomenal at work. He has a girlfriend he really cares about. He has his own place. He does not ask for money. He takes his job really serious, which is, <laughs> which is hilarious, because he just got a, a shirt for the job, a manager shirt or something like that, and he's so proud of that. He brought it up to show me, but then he called his grandmother uh, to show her. It's pretty cool. 
I still think if you were dressed a little differently and had short hair, which would be a great Father's Day present. Okay. Yeah. Uh huh. I've been saying that since you were 15. I know, I know, I know. Well, I cut it, and then I got it back. I'll cut it. I know, I know, I know, I know. I just like my hair. Stupid. 